If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Before we get started, if you would just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. That we can open up our Bibles and hear you speak whenever and wherever we are. I ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight, that your spirit would illuminate our minds and our hearts, that you would open our ears so that when you speak, we are listening. Keep me humble, Lord, that I don't get in the way of this message, that you use my stammering tongue to proclaim my great Redeemer's praise. We thank you for your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Few passages in the Bible have been quoted, reiterated, repeated, memorized more than Psalm 23. Its opening lines have perhaps even more familiarity than the classic children's prayer, Now I lay me down to sleep. Charles Spurgeon called it the pearl of the Psalms. Because of its poetic simplicity, picturesque imagery, and powerful truth, Psalm 23 stands out as a summary of God's care for his beloved sheep. Despite our familiarity with this psalm, it is my hope and my prayer that as we walk through its lines, we would have a new appreciation and encouragement of God's word. With that in mind, follow along as I read, and we then explore the riches of this great psalm. Beloved saints, this is God's holy and inspired word written for you. Listen carefully. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So right in the first sentence, the first phrase, we are presented with two descriptions of God that set up the foundation of the entire psalm. The first description is the Lord. In our English translations, it's written in small caps to denote the covenant name for God. Those caps simply point out that this is the great I am who I am. The tetragrammaton Y-H-W-H, which we usually pronounce as Yahweh. The Jews wanted to be so reverent and avoid any chance of taking the Lord's name in vain, so they used the stand-in Adonai as a replacement The point is, this is the great God who is timeless, in need of no one and no thing, who has been and is faithful to keep his covenant to his chosen people. Right out of the gate, the very first words is talking about God, are talking about God. His name denotes more than just a title for God. It's not just God is my shepherd, it's the Lord is my shepherd. This is the personal, covenanted relationship that God has had with his people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Moses and David and on down to us. It is the Lord, Adonai, who is our shepherd. 
The second description of God is shepherd. This has personal significance to David because he was a shepherd himself. He understood the responsibilities and challenges of being a shepherd. And it is intentionally being applied to God. And before we can understand what it fully means for God to be our shepherd, we have to make the implication of what that makes us. If God is shepherd, what are we? Sheep. And unfortunately for us, one of the most well-known characteristics of sheep is that sheep are dumb. Not just sort of not brilliant, but really, really stupid. Probably one of the most idiotic creatures in the animal kingdom. Sheep get themselves into dangerously stupid situations all the time, even by the simplest means. For example, even something as easy as eating grass or laying in the grass can be their downfall. If they eat too much, they will have bacteria reproduce at an excessive rate because of the surplus of nutrients, and they'll die. If they roll over too far in the grass because they were enjoying a nice little massage in the blades, and then they roll too far over, which they actually do quite frequently, the gases in their body will accumulate and they'll suffocate because they can't get themselves back over to the right way they should be. If they wander off from where the shepherd has given them nice grass to place and they go too far, they can easily find poisonous grass or pitfalls or holes to fall into. And they'll break their leg or they'll eat poison. And they have no difference, no preference. What's the difference between lush grass and nice grass? What's the difference between sturdy ground and shaky ground? It's all the same to them. I remember one time I, I saw a video of, of a shepherd digging a hole. I was a little confused, but then I saw two little tiny hooves at the very base of where he was digging. And as he began to dig more, I saw a little tail and then a wooly protrusion of fleece followed. And finally, as he pulled on the hooves, out popped a sheep. Not five seconds after the sheep is out and bounding and leaping for joy, in its excitement, it just flung itself back into the very hole it had just been pulled out of, where dirt had caved in on it and it almost had died. And the shepherd had to go do it, uh, go grab that sheep again. And if that's not a description of the Christian journey... And humanity in general, I, I don't know what is. It's not without reason that Isaiah says, Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Left on their own, sheep are helpless and will be their own ruin. And we are like that sheep who need a shepherd. Thankfully for us, we have such a shepherd. Think about this for a moment. God, the timeless creator of all things, who holds the universe in his hand and spins the stars, holds the stars and spins the planets in their motion, who cares for the entire world, uses the imagery of a humble, lowly shepherd to describe his care for us. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 3. He, God, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. Psalm 103 uses the same imagery, emphasizing possession and ownership. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his, his people and the sheep of his pasture. The Lord is my shepherd. And notice how personal the statement is. The Lord is my shepherd. 
He's not merely the shepherd or a shepherd or a shepherd of all God's people, though he is that. But as Spurgeon says, if he's a shepherd to no one else, he's a shepherd to me. The entire rest of the psalm is all first person, me, my, I. It's emphasizing the personal nature that this is a relationship with me and God. And if you just think how precious this truth is. Though God is caring for his people, though he is, again, the creator who holds all things by the word of his power, he is my shepherd who cares for me no matter how far I wander or how stupid I am with the wisdom God has given me. How often do we feel the words of that old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And yet, our faithful shepherd constantly guides our wayward hearts and cares for our weary souls. Jesus reminds us of his care when he talks about leaving the 99 to go after that one sheep. He does not care for us only as part of the whole or as what we contribute. Because as sheep, we are not valuable simply because we exist. We are valuable because who created us and who cares for us. It's out of who he is he just stoops in humility to guide and care for us and pursue his wandering sheep one more note of grammar and then we'll move on the words are in the present tense it's not just that the lord was my shepherd in the past but he is still my shepherd right now the same covenant keeping god who was faithful in the past is the same shepherd who is faithful now as second timothy 2.13 says, even when we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The Lord is my shepherd now and always. That was the long but important introduction that sets the entire foundation for the rest of the psalm. As we move to the first point, provision in the care of God. Provision in the care of God. Following the statement, the Lord is my shepherd, David then says, I shall not want. The inference of God being our shepherd is that we lack nothing. This is more than just God providing all of our needs. This is showing that God gives abundant language. The rest of the psalm uses words that describe God giving us above and beyond what we need. The idea is not just that God gives enough, but that he gives more than we could ever want. Is God enough for you? When God is our caring shepherd who provides our every need, what more could we lack? Does your soul delight in God who cares for you? We'll get more into this in a bit, but the driving point of the psalm was more than just, God gives me everything I need and I ask for. God is not Santa Claus. The emphasis of the psalm is not, look at what God gave me. It's, look, God gives Rather than a genie, God is the parent who cares for his helpless children. God is the shepherd who cares for his hopeless sheep. The subject of almost every sentence in this psalm is God. This is the point that James 1.17 says when it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is the source of my lacking nothing. God is the reason I shall not want. Not simply because he cares for my needs, and he does, but as the hymn says, he satisfies my heart, satisfies its deepest longings, meets, supplies its every need. Because the Lord is our shepherd, you and I truly do not want. This is the point of the entire psalm. 
Because God is our shepherd, we lack nothing. Because God is our shepherd, we lack nothing. Provision in the care of God means that God cares for our physical needs and our spiritual needs. First, our our physical needs. You see this when the psalmist writes, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What could be better for a sheep than luscious, green, fresh, delectable grass? Pasture as far as the eye can see. This is five-star resort land for sheep. And next to those pastures is still water, easy to drink from. In essence, God is providing for a sheep with nothing but the best. It's not dead, already mulled over, eaten grass by other sheep, and, and a rushing waterfall that is hard to drink from without getting swept away. This is green pastures, still water. This is what God does. He gave manna to, the, to Israel every single day and provides us with our daily bread so that we may see him as the rightful source of our provision. This theme is continued in the New Testament when Jesus talks about being anxious about nothing in Luke 11. After he talks about not being anxious for anything because God cares for the lilies and for the birds. And in conclusion, by implication, he says so much more for you. Jesus says, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If God cares for the birds and the lilies, he will most certainly care for his little sheep. It is our shepherd's pleasure to care for us, provide for us, and give us all that we need. And notice, God makes me lie down there. We have this image of staying a while, of rest. That's followed up with, he leads me beside still waters. Still, quiet waters. A light breeze rustles the grass, and the calm river slowly flows along its way. There's peace. The Hebrew is actually translated literally, he leads me besides waters of rest. A lot of time when we talk about physical needs, we talk about the need of food or clothing or water or shelter, and often forget about the rest our bodies need. God doesn't. He created us with that need. He, he knows we need that rest, and he provides us the rest that we need. He leads us to that rest. Take a breath. God gives it to you. After all the chaos we've been through, who doesn't need rest? And that is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For most of us, this year has been anything but easy. Anything but restful and peaceful. So this psalm reminds us, are you tired? Are you weary? Our shepherd is the one who leads beside still waters, and he alone gives the rest we need. So while David says that his body's physical needs are supplied with abundance, he also states that the great shepherd has not neglected the spiritual need of his soul. David boldly proclaims, verse 3, he restores my soul. Another way to translate that would be, he renews my life. The same idea that has been in the previous two statements is carried on here even more explicitly. When we are weak and weary, when we are exhausted to the point of death, our shepherd provides renewal and restoration of our lives. How sweet the refreshment God gives. He doesn't use stale bread to give manna. 
He doesn't use leftover grace to provide for our needs. He, the creator of our souls, restores souls. He gives them the strength they need and renews with new mercies every morning the life we need. The life of souls. But wait, there's more. To drive home the point of God's provision, God reminds us through David that not only does he make us lie down in green pastures, not only does he lead us beside waters of rest, not only does he restore our lives and our souls, he also leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads in paths of righteousness literally means right paths. The immediate implication is that we are led in the right way to go, and God does not make mistakes. There is no wrong path that you ended up on in God's rule. In the words of Spurgeon, remember this. Had any other situation been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Wherever your path has brought you, God has brought you there in his wisdom and out of his divine love. He does not make mistakes. He doesn't get really frustrated and say, you know what, that Silas guy, he's blown it for the last time today. I've had it. Detour for you, bud, bud. You're going on your way. Long route to heaven. Get lost a couple times, you loony. I've had it. I'm done. That's it. Break time. No, never. I am so glad that is not the case. Adonai leads us on the right paths, and he does it out of his great unending love for us. He knows what we need. Just real practically... How I have learned to live this out, I, I, learned, I developed this in college from a friend of mine. If you've ever heard the song, he's got the whole world in his hands, you can sub in whatever you want for world. Whatever you're facing, sub it in. And even just the simplicity of singing a repetitive song brings our cares to God and says, God, it doesn't feel like this is right. It doesn't feel like this is the way we should go. And yet you have the world in your hands and you're ruling all things. Even in the simplicity, I'm not saying this is my great suffering, but uh, I have a tiny little two-wheel car drive uh, trying to get to work, uh, to church today, and I was getting a little concerned about the hills, and Val starts singing, he's got the slippery roads in his hands. And it was so funny, but at the same time, it was so simple, a statement of faith. He's got it all. What What worries you? What grieves you? What is aching in your heart right now? That's in his hands too. A second implication of right paths is that David is not just saying that God leads us in the correct paths. He leads us in paths of rightness. He leads us in the right way, and that includes the right way to live. He enables us to live out his commands, and he leads in holiness the paths of rightness. That phrase, he leads, is repeated twice. He's a shepherd... God directing his sheep to to waters of rest. The point is God is making this happen. He walks with his sheep. God is the one who leads in paths of righteousness. God is the one who leads us on the right paths. The covenant of the faithful care does not depend us on us, but on God. And what good news that is, because on our own, we are wandering sheep. On our own, we are dumb lambs who return to that which will not satisfy, though our shepherd has given us all that we need and more. But under the watchful guidance of our shepherd's care, we walk in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
That's the testimony of every Christian, isn't it? If someone comes up to you and asks, how do you live for God? What makes someone a good Christian? You can answer with Psalm 23, 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's all God. Any holiness in our lives, any righteousness by which we live was purchased and paid for by the blood of the lamb and secured and, and developed by his constant leading in our lives. God is the one caring. God is the one who provides. God is the one leading us in paths of righteousness. The question then is, why? Why does he lead us in paths of righteousness and care for us? Lowly, wandering sheep. Verse 3 tells us, for his name's sake. He does this all for the sake of his name. Or in other words, he's got a reputation to uphold. He promised to be a faithful, loving, caring shepherd, and he will be for the sake of his name. But even beyond that, I believe it's pointing to the guarantee of his name. This is Adonai. I am who I am. Do you know who your God is? Just like when Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? The name I am who I am was to be enough. I am who I am. The God of your fathers has sent you. In the same way, Adonai will lead us and give us provision out of his care. How do we know? It's in the name. A rose by any other name may smell as sweet, but a God by any other name will not be the same or enough. It is Adonai and only Adonai. I am who I am has promised, and the guarantee of his promised care is his name. His promise is the contract. His name is the check we take to the bank, and we have zero fear of it bouncing. Haven't we already found God to be faithful? He held true to his name in the past, he holds true to his name now, and he will hold true to his name in the future. As the hymn says, can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Why should we be worried or downcast? Why should we be in despair? What more should we want or need? Hope in God, for we shall again praise him, our salvation and our God. When we are weak or struggling, sorrowful and despairing, we can take it to the God who cares, who carries our sorrows, knows our weaknesses, and is a friend so faithful. He leads us in the right paths for his name's sake. So we have the provision in the care of God, and now we move to protection in the comfort of God. Protection in the comfort of God. As a reminder, the point the psalmist is making in this psalm is that because God is our shepherd, we lack nothing. So up to this point, it's been God provides, God leads, God restores, God cares. And that's all great until the brave kid in the back raises his hand and asks, So, um, how come it doesn't feel like God's providing And to that question, we meet verse 4. Verses 4 and 5 almost sound like the antithesis to verse 1. How can I not want when I am in the valley of the shadow of death? The very name of the valley connotes loss and lack of life. If the psalm didn't have verses 4 and 5, though, we'd think it's some fairy tale, unrealistic dreamland of magical princess happiness. But the Bible and this psalm in particular do not hide the reality of evil and death. 
Verses 1 to 3 tells us that God provides and cares over and above our every need. Verses four, verse 4 and 5 is a continuation of verses 1-3 that God still cares even in the midst of the valley. The psalm blatantly speaks to the evil. Our Lord promised us that in this world you will have trouble. So though God leads us beside still waters, we still will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If you have not entered the valley yet, I promise you will at some point. I'm sorry. And if you have entered that valley, it is my prayer and hope that you will find great hope and see that hope in these next two verses. As we are led down the path into the valley, I want you to take a look back at where the the path has come from. The path of righteousness. The path that meandered in green pastures and by waters of rest is the same path that traces its way through the floor of the valley of the shadow of death. They're the same path. God does not lead us on wrong paths, only right ones. And as John Bunyan put it, the only way to the celestial city is through the valley of the shadow of death. But even with such a foreboding statement, as we make our footsteps through the pitch black of the valley, the psalmist makes a bold proclamation that seems almost strange considering his location. I will fear no evil. He boldly states it. Which makes us ask, fear no evil? Even in the valley of death? The valley of darkness and creeping shadows? Why does he fear no evil? David gives two reasons. Look at the next two parts. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The first reason we fear no evil is because of the presence of the shepherd. God is with us. This is the the joy of Christmas. Emmanuel, God is with us. God dwelt with man. We have seen his glory, glory of the only begotten son, full of grace and truth. God, Emmanuel, is with us. Listen to Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. For he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And at first glance, it seems like a very ignorant statement to make. What can man do to me? I can think of all sorts of things man can do to me. Just walk the streets of Seattle or New York City or any major city in the world. Don't actually do this. Um, but if you walk it, if, if, if a hypothetical person were to walk in a very dangerous part of the city, you would be very hyper aware of what man can do to you. Many of you have experienced horrifically what men can do. So are we supposed to take a blase and indifferent attitude to the horrors of the pain we feel and see? Is that how we fear no evil? First of all, we should never take an apathetic or indifferent attitude to the grief and suffering we experience. Jesus wept because of his grief, and we can and should weep as well. But the reason we do not fear even the greatest evils or suffering or wickedness we experience is not because we are numb to the pain or we foolishly believe we will never experience evil or suffering in this life. But rather, it's because God is our helper who will never leave us nor forsake us. He is a very present help in times of trouble. It can be easy to fear when we f- fear evil when we forget the goodness of our God, who is for us, who is with us, and is working our good even in the valley. Again, this doesn't make the valley any less hard 
or awful. But it does make it possible because God is with us every step of the way. He is a good shepherd who does not leave us to survive on our own. It's not that there is no evil, and that's why I don't fear. It's that there is evil, but there is no evil I fear. It's not that there is no evil, and that's why I have no fear. It's that there is evil, but there is no evil I fear. God is with me, and his rod and staff, they comfort me. In John 10, which we read earlier, Jesus describes for us just exactly what he, our great shepherd, does for us. He protects us, will not let the growling wolves or the, uh, the, the growling wolves devour us or the roaring lions sift us like wheat. He does not entrust his flock to a higher hand, but the care of his sheep is a charge and responsibility that on himself he has laid. And no one, not a single person or trial or circumstance we face can snatch us out of his hand. He will not slumber or sleep and there is no sneaking up on God. He can never be deceived, so there's no wolf in sheep's clothing ruse that can fool him. He guards his beloved fiercely. How fiercely? Jesus tells us that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Greater love has no man than this, that he give up his life for his friends. The cross is the power that dispels fear of evil. No greater evil happened than when Jesus was brutally murdered and crucified on the cross. And yet that great evil was redeemed for our great good. That evil removed all fear of any future evil. If God's purposes are our purposes and we want what he wants, then there is no evil. There is no fear of evil. Rather, there is evil. There is no fear of evil. Because no evil on this earth can stop his righteous purposes. No wrong can thwart God's good. And that was proven at the cross. That evil where our shepherd willingly gave up his life for his loved ones. Lost sheep. That brought us back into relationship with God. A relationship so close that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And even if hell should be on either side of us and the devil roar like a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and the blood of the lamb cannot and will not be defeated. Even if we must walk through the valley of the shadow of death, our God is with us. Our God is for us and his rod and staff will bring us safely through. Not even death will prevent his purpose. So we can say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He is the God who redeems even the greatest evil his son experienced and has promised the same for us. So yes, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you alone. Our great God will lead us safely and are with me. Notice the change from third person about God in verses one through three to first person to God in verse four. David is talking to us about God's care at first, but now in the valley, he is talking directly to God. Where we notice the most direct, personal, and intimate relationship with the shepherd happens in the most fierce and naturally fear-inducing moments in the valley. Like David, we will often experience God's presence closest when the battle is thickest. But this is not because God left us on our own and when the light breeze was flowing through the the grass and now is with us in the hurricane in the depths of the valley. 
but rather the pain and fear of the valley drives us to be more aware of his presence. As one author wrote, it is not that Christ is closer in the valley, but that we realize in the valley how close he has always been. The first reason we find comfort is the presence of the shepherd, and the second is because of the possessions of the shepherd. Namely, his rod and staff. The image of a rod is like a club used to beat down beasts preying on the sheep. There's comfort in the shepherd's defense of his sheep. The point is clear. Not only is the rod and staff symbols of of comfort for the presence of the shepherd, but his rod reminds us that there is nothing in the valley that our shepherd cannot handle. No matter how large the shadows loom, how loud the growls echo, our shepherd is with us and on guard. Well, the shepherd's rod is a comfort for fear of predators. The shepherd's staff is a comfort for fear of getting lost. A shepherd's staff is used to guide the sheep and prod them along the path. The comfort is not only that God is with us in the valley, and he is, or that he is fending off the terrors of the darkness, and he is, but just as wonderful, his steady hand is guiding us through it all. We may not have chosen the valley, but God, the sovereign ruler and creator of all things, including this valley, will lead us safely through it. Just a quick note on the word through. When the psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is reminding himself and us that we are merely traveling through this valley, not setting up camp here. Most of us feel like we do not merely walk through the valley, but live in it. Whether it is the death of a loved one, the sudden death of our own or our child's innocence, the death of a job, the death of a dream, the near-death experience of our own health, or any other death we face, Our lives can become graveyards filled with the tombstones of our suffering. Because of the constant reminders of the evil and darkness we face, we feel as though the valley is the only part of the path we seem to walk, and it never seems to end. We feel the constant, heavy shadow of the valley of death. But remember, loved ones, we walk through it, not dwell in it. As C.S. Lewis said, the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that this will not always be so. One day, God willing, we shall enter in. The psalm then moves from protection and presence in the valley to protection and presence in the face of our enemies. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Most of us in the presence of our enemies would be preparing for attack. We're locking down the gates and manning the defenses. We're on guard, ready, and prepared, braced for impact. So you'd expect to read that God is our shield, our defender, and strong tower. He is referred to that elsewhere in the Psalms, but here he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David's enemies are banging their swords on their shields and bellowing their war cries. And within sight of those glaring eyes of the enemy, God is setting out placemats. It has to make you chuckle. Like, what is the battle strategy there? I Forks on the left, forks on the left, forks on the left. Make sure we got our nice little centerpiece there. It's like, there's, there's the enemies. What? And he's preparing a banquet for David. 
The oil is used in ancient times as a, a sign of welcoming, and the cup overflowing reiterates the lavish care and provision of God we have already seen. God is protecting his loved ones from his enemies to the point that he can prepare a feast right in front of them. This is similar to Psalm 4-8 where it says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God has the night watch, so we can sleep in peace. God is the one making the banquet, and we can enjoy the meal even in the presence of our enemies. Our God brings comfort in the valleys and spreads banquets in the lairs of our enemies. Whether it's the hostility of circumstances or the hostility of our enemies, God protects and comforts in every crisis. So we move from the protection in the comfort of God to the preservation in the faithfulness of God. For the OCD people out there who need a C word to complete the alliteration, you can use the constancy of God. But the idea conveyed here is of God's steady, steadfast, covenanted faithfulness. That word mercy in, is the word in Hebrew, chesed. It means steadfast love or faithful kindness. It denotes God's faithfulness in keeping his promise of love, like the covenant of, of love between a married couple. It is a great steadfast love and faithful kindness. It's not just mercy, though it is that, but the unconditional, devoted, and faithful love that God has for his people, that no imagery can ever fully encapsulate that's why paul prays in ephesians 3 i'm praying that you will have the eyes to see the depth and breadth and heights of god's love that you will know that because we can explore and the, it has no bottom or top it's it's unchained love and it's steadfast and faithful another word is that word follow and follow me all the days of my life one way to think of that would be word pursue like a cheetah chasing down a gazelle or to continue the analogy a wolf chasing down a sheep but instead of a bad life-threatening pursuit this is a life-giving pursuit it's being chased by good things like a a a guy running after you to give you a hundred bucks well that hasn't happened to you recently yeah me either But instead of money, we have a much greater blessing of being pursued by the goodness and steadfast faithfulness of our God. It's that goodness and love that is following us right on our heels. And what joy should fill us when we consider what is right on our heels every single day, chasing after us whatever step we take as he leads. I know we've been talking a lot about ways to translate words. But I think it's important as it gives us an idea of exactly what way the words are being used. So if you'll bear with me one more. Another way to translate the first word of that sentence, surely, could be only. So we could read that as, only goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But either way, whether it's surely or only goodness and chesed pursuing us, it might make us pause. Were it not for the fact that verses 4 and 5 have directly preceded this statement, we might be tempted to think that David is some sheltered prince who has never tasted the reality of suffering. Otherwise, how on any earth we live in could he say something like that? In light of the valley and the enemies, how can only goodness and mercy follow him? The truth of his statement comes in a reminder of God's definition of goodness and steadfast love. 
For when we look at the world, we are reminded of weakness and suffering and the pain we face. But when we look at scripture, we are reminded of God's purposes for that suffering pain. The goodness we face isn't in the suffering itself, which is wicked and difficult and painful or all three combined at the same time, but in what God is doing in that suffering. Johnny Erickson Tata, a woman who has experienced more pain in her life than many of us will ever experience in ours, put it this way. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. What does God hate? Many things, but I think for time's sake, we can sum it up as as he hates the opposite of his character. He hates injustice and evil. Psalm 5 and 11 say, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And then Isaiah 61, 8 sums up this idea. says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them, my people, their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Our souls ache when we experience the harsh shadow of death. Our hearts cry in justice when the defenseless are attacked, when the orphan and widow are not cared for by those who should know better, when the church of God is bruised by wolves outside and by under-shepherds battered the church within, when the cruel world we live in mocks and maligns the least of these, when the agonies of the hurting seem to go unanswered, we weep and we are not alone. God hates that. He hates the suffering we face. He hates the sin that runs rampant through this world. He is not indifferent to your pleas for mercy, your cries for help, or your prayers for justice. He weeps with those who weep. He holds your tears in his bottle, and he hates the suffering you're enduring. He hates it as much as he hated the evil that his son endured. And yet... God allowed that suffering, that great injustice of agony, to accomplish a greater purpose, the redemption of his people. No one who has ever walked this earth endured greater injustice, greater pain, and greater suffering than our Lord Jesus. And yet, that great suffering God gave himself up to. He entrusted himself to his heavenly father who promised to accomplish greater purposes in it. God allows what he absolutely detests to accomplish what he absolutely cherishes. He allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God is working all things, including this great evil, for your good. This suffering you are, preparing, you are facing is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that as you look not to the things that are seen, the very real things, but the realities that are unseen, your inner self is being renewed day by day. And you know that your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, purchased and sealed by the blood of the Lamb. He is your guarantee. So yes, nothing, not even this great evil, is preventing the goodness and chesed of Adonai from chasing you, after, chasing after you all the days of your life. For your God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God who will not let you be snatched out of his hand.
The psalm ends with a promise that the guest at the table in verse 5 is now a resident. The right path has reached its end. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, the path earlier went by green pastures and waters of rest, then descended into the valley and the presence of our enemies. It now returns home to the presence of the Lord. For all true believers, God's sheep, we will all eventually dwell in God's house. We may not be home yet, but our permanent street address is heaven. We shall return to the house of the Lord and dwell there forever. What a joy to look forward to. Revelation seven seventeen tells us the end of the story. The lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The sacrificial lamb is the loving shepherd who has promised to bring us to the ultimate waters of rest. He will remove all trace of the tears we cried in the valley. And when we arrive in the glorious light of our heavenly home, even the presence of our enemies will fade in the presence of his glorious grace. And the best part, it's all the days of our lives. Forever. We will be home forever. Oh, good. I can hardly wait. Can you? So we're reminded of the provision and the care of God, protection in the comfort of God, and preservation in the faithfulness of God. Because Adonai is our shepherd, we truly lack nothing. I close with this. One of the great hymn writers, Fanny Crosby, penned the words, All the way my Savior leads me. And I think it sums up our passage well. We can substitute the word uh, shepherd for uh, savior to help us think about the psalm. Listen to these marvelous words. All the way my shepherd leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my shepherd leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. All the way my shepherd leads me, oh, the fullness of his love, perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit, clothed immortal, wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. Would you pray with me? O Lord, our shepherd, thank you for your care for us your faithfulness to us, your comfort, your presence, that you will lead us all the way. Whether we walk through the valleys or through the, by the still waters, you are our shepherd, and in you we lack nothing. Lord, I ask that you would give us strength, that you would care for us, that you would equip us to trust you, even in the midst of the valleys. Comfort 
guide, care, be a balm for the hurting. Keep our eyes fixed on that day when you come on those clouds to take us to our heavenly home. Cannot wait, Lord. We look to you. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones in the Lord, I'd like to close out our time together before um, just by encouraging you with a blessing from the Lord taken from the end of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of his covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.